Today's episode is brought to you by Rosalie Connects. Vera Kelly is not a mystery, which Lauren Wilkinson calls a propulsive, subversive gem. In this exciting second installment of the Vera Kelly series, Connect challenges and deepens the Vera we love, sending her recently out of the spy game heroine from Brooklyn to a sprawling countryside estate in the Caribbean in her first case as a private investigator. Says Idranovi, Vera's take on who's lying and why makes for riveting reading in every scene. I tore through this book. More Vera Kelly, please. Vera Kelly is not a mystery, is out now from Tin House Books. Today's episode of Tin House Live is a craft talk given by Lydia Yuknovich at the 2018 Tin House Summer Writers Workshop called Writing from the Deep Cut. Lydia Yuknovich is the author of many books, from her iconic memoir, The Chronology of Water, to her most recent groundbreaking story collection, Verge, for which she will soon be on Between the Covers as a guest. She was also a guest for her book, The Small Backs of Children, which would be an excellent follow-up listen to this one. And in this craft talk, she mentions the work of many writers who've appeared on the show before, from Claudia Rankin's Citizen and Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts to Justin Torres's We the Animals, Melissa Phoebos's Abandon Me, to Therese Marie Myatt's Heartberries. The links to all of these and other references will be included in the listener-supporter episode email that is possibly already in your inbox. If you're interested in finding out about becoming a supporter of Between the Covers and what is available to you if you do, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. I'll end my introduction to Lydia's talk with Lydia's own words describing the talk for the workshop schedule. In the words of Lydia Yuknovich, we are always living in tumultuous times. The despair and trauma fracture our life narratives, daily, culturally, and personally. And yet we endure, make love, make art, we keep creating. There is so much to learn from the edge of things, from the cracks and cuts and fissures of the earth, of our hearts. What can writing become? What new narrative strategies are emerging? How might we become and story ourselves differently? How might more bodies and stories and voices emerge as the old mono-stories break apart? Storytelling is a site of resistance and generative possibility in all times. Finally, one last thing before we give it over to Lydia. This talk culminates in 12 people volunteering to go on stage to participate in a revolutionary creative act, sharing things that they had written that are powerful, but also sometimes quite personal and revealing. Because we don't have the permission of these 12 anonymous participants, the episode ends before their reading of their words. And now for Writing from the Deep Cut with Lydia Yuknovich. Well, this is terrifying. I'm so scared I shave my armpits. <laughs> I don't think I've shaved my armpits for like 12 years. 
Some people who know me, that's, that's a thing. <laughs> so I'm so thrilled to be with you again, although this is my terror right here. So I'm standing in my terror. And I'm saying that out loud for anyone else in the room who knows what that feels like. Um, and I have rocks from my squad in my dress pockets. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that helps too. Here's how it's going to go. I'm going to open with a kind of invocation quote or a sort of portal. And you might need something, you will need something to write on twice. I'm going to talk about a definition that has to do with the title I apparently made up for this. <laughs> and then I'm going to go through a list of narrative strategies for you. And then there's another quote we pass through that's important. And then we commit a revolutionary act. Don't worry, it's legal. Where'd they go? <laughs> it's fine. Uh, because I, I don't actually do lectures. I was standing at a podium like this when I was still in academia when I was 40, which was 15 years ago, and I was right in the middle of delivering an academic paper, like in the middle of it. And I thought I wanted to be a scholar, so I was like doing my thing. And right in the middle of the paper I was reading, and this other little Lydia showed up, like right here, going, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're using the language of the oppressor. I swear, that's what she said. Just this little creepy angel devil Lydia. And I couldn't finish the paper and I walked out and I never did anything like that in academia again and I became a fiction writer. So that happened. <laughs> so instead of, instead of lectures, um, I consider what I'm doing a kind of recruitment effort. You'll see. <laughs> Here's the invocation. Here's the quote. We're, like, we're passing through it as a group. And probably a lot of you know this quote already, but it has to do with what it feels like to be in our times and moving through woundedness. It's an excerpt from an essay by Queen Toni Morrison which you've probably seen, No Place for Self-Pity, No Room for Fear. You can look it up. Um, it's Christmas. It's the day after Christmas. It's 2004, and it's following the presidential election of George W. Bush. Raise your hand if you're um, in your 50s right now. Remember that? And here's, what, here's what's in the essay. This is Tony. I'm standing out of the window in an extremely dark mood, feeling helpless, then a friend, a fellow artist, calls to wish me happy holidays, and he asks, how are you? And instead of, oh, fine, and you, I blurt out the truth. Not well. Not only am I depressed, I can't seem to work, to write. It's as though I'm paralyzed, unable to write anything more in the novel I've begun. I've never felt this way before. But the election... <laughs> And I'm about to explain with further detail when he interrupts shouting, no, 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 no. This is precisely the time when artists go to work. Not when everything is fine, but in times of dread. That's our job. 
I felt foolish the rest of the morning, especially when I recalled the artists who had done their work in gulags, prison cells, hospital beds, who did their work while hounded, exiled, reviled, pilloried, and those who were executed. This is precisely the time when artists go to work. There is no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal. Now raise your hand, have you heard that before? Raise your hand. It's a good one, isn't it? That's 2004. That's all I'm saying about that. <laughs> But similar feelings, right? Couldn't it have been 2018? Or 2017, whatever. Or many, many other times. To me, that invocation, that quote, is a call to arms. But don't worry, I mean artist arms. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing with you today. I'm creating a call to arms, and you're going to help me in a little bit. So first I want to talk to you about a definition. The title of this thing, apparently some clown made this up, writing from the deep cut. <laughs> I read it and I'm like, what? <laughs> and I think what I meant <laughs> at the time was the cut, you know, as um, symbolic wound or wound of some sort. That's what I meant by cut. And so if you look the word wound up, if you're nerdish and you go into the vortex of Wikipedia and Google, like we all do, you get these three, and they're so great. You're writers, so you're listening differently than regular mammals. This is great. Uh, one, an injury to the body as from violence, accident, or surgery that typically involves laceration or breaking of a membrane, such as skin, and usually damage to underlying tissues. Okay, I'm nerd enough that I just heard seven story ideas <laughs> or poem ideas or painting ideas in that one definition. Second one, equally cool, very short, a mental or emotional hurt or blow. So now we're getting kind of psychological and internal. I'm down. That's cool. And the third one, I don't know why I didn't expect to see this in the definition, but a rift in or blow to a social group. And that made all the hairs on my arms stand up. Because all three of those definitions, to me, are artist material, artist landscape. Like, go in there and do something to it. So it's like, okay, Lydia, do what? Miss Fancy. So this is a part where you can jot some notes down. Okay, I'm coaching you. I'm, I'm dividing woundedness into three categories just for the purposes of what we're doing today. The first one is personal wounds. The second one is historical wounds. And the third one is ancestral wounds. Okay? And so what I want you to do is, is not take all day, but just jot down a couple examples you can think of from you and your life in all three categories. So I'm going to say them again. Personal wounds, historical wounds, 
and ancestral wounds. And I'll even tell you a couple of mine just to get you going, just to concretize it. So personal wounds, I might say my father and how he abused us. Make sense? Uh, I might also say the death of my daughter. Those qualify to me as personal wounds, so I jot those down. For historical wounds, I mean, I could name any number of things, but I was born in the years that JFK and MLK and Malcolm X were shot, and the civil rights movement and the women's movement. I was born in 1963, so kind of in that, that was like the, the portal I shot through. <laughs> I, that's my eternal gesture for being born. If you want to practice it, it goes like this. Um, I came of age during the dreaded Nixon era, so maybe I'd write that. Um, and I became a writer during the Reagan and Bush years and, and the culture wars. Remember those? I mean, that part's happened before. <laughs> and 9-11 and the American-made wars in the Middle East, all of them that are sustained today. And the clusterfuck we made in the world. Sorry, recording, if that's happening. And then for ancestral wounds, because I'm me, I might jot down um, Lithuanian immigrant history, because that's in my genetic code. I'm an immigrant family story line. I might jot down lineage of abused women and how they don't die, because there's a whole bunch of them in my family and people history. Okay, you got the idea? That was me trying to help you jot a couple things in each category. I will take a few sips of water. You do the jotting down. Even if you just get one in each category, it's enough to work with. Raise your hands and show me your armpits if you're done. Good. I see who shaved. So from my point of view, if you think of those three definitions of wounds and then this three kinds of history I'm talking to you about, I think not all writers, but some of us are always writing between those categories and trying to weave our way between them and, and make a helix of them at the same time. Not all writers, but a lot of writers. Raise your hand if you agree with that. And maybe that's you. And if it is you, you're among those I'm trying to recruit to like get louder. The job of the writer, remember, the invocation quote. So I'm gonna list some strategies for, um, I even titled this, list of narrative strategies to try in the face of clusterfuck. <laughs> <laughs> Any type. Um, and we'll come back to whatever it is you jotted down. So number one. In number one's example, I'm going to use my books as a book that does this, but don't panic because I'll quickly never mention myself again in any of the other <laughs> examples because, ew. <laughs> it's just an easy way to start and talk about it, okay? So here's number one. Ask what the wound is generative of. What we're usually asking is, how did the wound hurt me? Or how can I heal? Or how can I fight back? Or any number of those kind of things. 
This question is different. Ask how the wound is, gen what it's generative of. So my father's abuse produced in me a fractured identity. I took that fractured identity out into the world. I lashed out, I self-destructed, uh, all kinds of crazy behaviors. But then eventually in life, I took the pieces of a self, this fractured identity, and arranged them in patterns, something like a kaleidoscope, where the pieces could have a gestalt, they could make a shape, and lo and behold, a story emerged. And that story was the chronology of water. And it became instantly okay for it to be in pieces, like my identity. In fact, it didn't just become okay, it became the only way I could tell the story in pieces. Do I tell every story in pieces? Kind of, but not really. <laughs> a lot of them. Because I have found by putting the story in pieces and turning each piece, I can tell a different kind of story. And in this case, I needed that. Similarly, my daughter dying, which I mentioned before, it left a cavernous grief and loss hole inside my heart and body that's still there. Perhaps you just heard it in my voice. And yet, that seemingly empty nothingness space had something in it. A girl who might yet be born on the page. Endlessly. A girl who can live many lives, save herself, decreate and recreate herself endlessly. So my personal loss and the hole in me was generative of stories of girls who remake the world and they're better at it than I am in my life. And that's enough. That's good. And if you read anything I've ever written, there's a girl in it. In all of them. I don't know, maybe someday there will be something besides a girl, but right now it's a girl. And she is what came from the hole. We all come from a hole, by the way. <laughs> I'm just saying. So number two. For the love of oceans, resist binaries. We are so past binaries. We are so in a more interesting moment than making meaning through binaries. Hold them open, refuse them, scratch at them, agitate them, write in the liminality where anything is still possible, invent non-binary meanings all over the place as you can, characters, stories. Hold the binaries open, write down the sheet between them. It will produce a more interesting character, plot, tension, storyline. If you need me to remind you, there's good and evil. Boring, dull. Who among you is perfectly good or perfectly evil? No one. Right? Male, female. <laughs> Gender's a hoax. Are you following me? And a book that I would recommend that holds binaries open in ways you can actually track and also have your face blown off by um, Justin Torres, We the Animals. Because you'd think he's writing directly into abuse. And you'd think, oh, it's going to be really dark and sad. It's one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. It's a tricky mouthful to say. Just trust me, this book will rearrange your DNA. It's amazing. And some of you have read it, right? Right? And so the binary thing? Mm -hmm. 
Number three. I know this won't be for everybody, but whatever. Do not be afraid to represent violence or sexuality or ecstasy or trauma. These extreme states of being are painful. Yeah, no shit. I get that. But they are also portals into deep, deep meaning for humans. They open up experience into hundreds of meanings rather than value-laden meanings of good or bad. Uh, a striking book that's come out very recently, Therese Myatt's book, Heartberries, and you spell Myatt, M-A-I-L-H-O-T, but really good example of this non-avoidance of violence, sexuality, and wherever they go. She also wrote the story in pieces, which I'm still studying. Number four, dare yourself to write beyond the necessary fictions we create so that our lives feel safe. Everybody in the room in your life creates a series of necessary fictions about ourselves and our lives so that we don't break down and cry every day of our lives. Do you know what I mean? And so we both need those stories we're telling ourselves about here's how I can keep getting up and going in the world every day and stick around. We need them, but we also know their stories. And so I'm saying occasionally write beyond them and see what's on the other side. Ask what is the story underneath the personal events that define you, the historical events you think define you. So this one, I know you'll all agree with me, see every book ever written by Toni Morrison, right? All of them do this. They take the necessary fictions we tell ourselves and then every single character is undone. And that is the way, right? Also, Leslie Marmon Soko's book, Ceremony, to me, is a quintessential example of what I'm talking about, the main character especially, but other characters too. I like it when you shake your head because it makes me feel like I'm not crazy. <laughs> This way, I mean. <laughs> she immediately went. <laughs> Number five. Okay, this, this one will bum lots of people out. And so this one isn't for everybody either. I get it. Don't be mad at me. Risk leaving the tired out old tropes. For instance, the unified and stable main character as the lead in a story. That's a hard one for you, I know. You love you some main character. You do. And you like to make stable, unified characters that last the whole story, and they're main characters for a reason, because main. Risk breaking that main character syndrome, I'd call it at this point, down in favor of multivocality. Many voices. Many bodies. 
I was just realizing, looking at my beloved squad members, many people in the group I was fortunate enough to work with in these workshops are doing these things. So you should recognize some of them, you guys, if you hear them. But, you know, risking letting go of a main character in favor of what if, you know, in Almanac of the Dead, there are 63 characters. She got slammed for it. I was giddy. I, like, creamed my pants. I thought that was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life and loved it and learned from it and changed my life because of it. Because I didn't just see that there were so many characters, which is what the surface idiot critics saw. What I saw was that you need all those voices to tell any story, or you're repressing and oppressing some bodies and stories over others. That's the politics of insisting on a main character. Do you see what I'm saying? And yet, those stories are good too. <laughs> I'm just saying this is another thing to try. Except for the revolution part where... <laughs> What was that, number five? Number six is breakdown form, which I spoke to earlier about my own work. Uh, linear stories are swell, so don't be mad about me at that either. <laughs> I love linear stories as much as you do. I like them, they make me feel good. Um, traditional storytelling forms are also swell, but just check it out for a second. Our lives, our memories, our dreams, our emotions, our experiences, our bodies, our relationships, our successes, our failures, our fears, our desires, our drives, our mistakes, basically next to nothing about us moves in linear form. Exactly. So it feels good to make it, and I want those to exist in the world. I also want something to exist in the world that reflects how it is to really be us which is why I champion non-traditional narrative, right? I, um, traditional narrative has nothing to fear from me. It will be safe and sound and sell all over the place forever. So it's okay for me to champion something else. I don't need to worry about them. Uh, braided narratives, lyric fragments, collages, using multiple discourses. You've read books like this, right? Working in fragments. Uh, one of the greatest books written in the last 25 years, Citizen. Uh, yeah, we get the good murmur in our chest, right? Decided, she decided the form must break. And more than one voice must exist. And this story can't be told any other way. Um, the Argonauts, Maggie Nelson. A completely different book, but also breaking linear narrative apart, using more than one discourse, shifting, making turns in storytelling in pieces. And then here's one I think you learned a lot about. Was Melissa's craft talk yesterday? Was that yesterday? It was either yesterday or a year ago, because at this point time has done this, and I can't tell when anything was. But um, Try thinking of sexuality as a real place of radical exploration. Not some idiotic porn scene you inherited from Hollywood or a set of cultural codings that you have to live up to and represent. What if sexuality was as dynamic a territory 
as the environment you put your characters in in a novel. This is for you, Nate. <laughs> and of course, who am I thinking of when I suggest that one but the wondrous Melissa Phoebos, particularly Abandon Me and Whipsmart, and, and Rhonda's work too. Um, several people who have been at this workshop talking to you come to mind, but I was talking in workshop today. We have yet to write into what sexuality is fully capable of showing us about ourselves, from my point of view. We're still writing the sex scene. For the love of oceans, again, let it go. There's nothing in there. It doesn't reveal anything. It's dull. It's not even sexy anymore. And number eight, this is the last on the list, in case you're pacing yourself. Do not shut out painful realities. And here's a quote that precedes the last quote. People who shut their eyes to reality, you know, like now, some people are like, I can't watch the news, I won't want to be on the internet, I don't want to know what's going on. People who shut their eyes to reality simply invite their own destruction. And anyone who insists on remaining in a state of blind innocence long after that innocence is dead turns himself into a monster. James Baldwin. That's a good one. You can find him internetically and find that quote. And so the book that comes to mind for me, it's another one that rearranged my DNA, it was Giovanni's Room, which that quote represents to me. Don't close your eyes to painful realities. In point of fact, those are the doors. Walk through them. You're gonna have pain in your life no matter what you do. Right? Same with the page. So then this is a, a quote doorway toward our interactive session. <laughs> The poet or the revolutionary is there to articulate the necessity, but until the people themselves apprehend it, nothing can happen. Perhaps it can't be done without the poet, but it certainly can't be done without the people. The poet and the people get on generally very badly, and yet they need each other. The poet knows it sooner than the people do. The people usually know it after the poet is dead, but that's all right. The point is to get your work done. And your work is to change the world. Most of us, no matter what we say, are whistling in the dark. Nobody knows what is going to happen to him or her from one moment to the next, or how we will bear it. This is irreducible, and it's true of everybody. Now, it is true that the nature of society is to create among its citizens an illusion of safety. But it is also absolutely true that the safety is always necessarily an illusion. Artists are only here to disturb the peace. Also James Baldwin. So now we're going to disturb some peace. Um, so go back to those things you jotted down earlier. Or even if you just did it in your head, conjure it. That's fine too. And I'm challenging you to write one revolutionary sentence that draws from your personal history, your social history, and your ancestral history. Just one. You know, an exclamation, 
a revolutionary statement, a manifesto sentence? Like, why should we be writing it all right now? And you only get one sentence, but it's got to be a powerful sentence. So can you do that? You have like 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, about 10 more seconds. Okay, go like this if you made one. I'm, I need a few more people than that. <laughs> I love that you're actually doing this when I ask you to. How about now? Go like this. Do you do one? It's a little better. Okay. I now need 12 volunteers to come up here with me with their sentence so that we can create a revolutionary act slash poem from the lines. So, 12 of you, and I mean no offense to anyone in the room, but it can't, they can't all be white people, okay? So 12 people <laughs> must come up here. When you're ready, we need 12 or we can't get out of here. So, yeah. <laughs> come on down. There's our first volunteer. There's our second volunteer. There's our third volunteer. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Lydia Yuknovich's work at lydiayuknovich.net and also at corporealwriting.com, the website for the Corporeal Writing Center, where Lydia and others teach under a body-centered, art-making philosophy. If you like what you've heard and are interested in supporting the show, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers or tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who tirelessly help make the show run as smoothly as possible. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>